Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The Wall Street Journal reports September jobs report shows payrolls grew by 263,000. Labor market cooled some. Unemployment rate edged down to 3.5 percent, matching a half century low. Are these numbers the positive indicators that analysts are claiming they are? Well, for insight, let's turn to our first guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, including The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. He is Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. Always glad to join you. So 263,000 jobs added in September for the 21st straight month of hiring gains with the total extending a gradual cooling pattern as high inflation and rising interest rates weighed on the economy. Uh, The president has been making some tours of IBM plants and uh, some other auto plants, and he's touting uh, his job numbers. Are these numbers the indicators that they are claiming that they are? Well, first, you got to realize that these numbers come from only one of the surveys that the Labor Department does called the Establishment Survey, uh, which is just uh, reporting from large corporations to the government. Uh, And even that number that they report to the government is only part of that 263. Uh, There's another methodology that the Labor Department uses called New Business Net Formation. In other words, they uh, say how many new businesses, mostly small, were created this month and how many uh, went went under. And what that net difference is new business formation. And then they plug an uh, average estimate of number of uh, employees per new business. And they take that data point uh, and they add it to the report given from large corporations. And then on top of that, they do their statistical operations uh, that have to do, you know, with seasonality and so on and so forth. It's a statistic, it's not, which is an estimate of real data. And there's two data sources, as I said. Now, the problem with the second data source, new business formation, is that they know how many businesses uh, are created because uh, companies, uh, you know, have to file with their their state that they're in business, but they have no idea how many have gone under. <laughs> because if you fail as a corporation, you're not going to file any government reports. So, this data, new business net new business formation, is lagged six to nine months. So, what you're seeing here mm. in uh, September is really new net new business formation, which surged when the economy began to open last March and April. Uh, So it's distorted, I believe. Uh, And also it's um, not reflective of the real picture, which is softer than 263,000, because most, uh, well, I don't know if I'd say most, but many of uh, the jobs being, quote, hired here 
are part-time and temp jobs. You know, as the economy goes into a recession, businesses aren't going to load up with a lot of full-time workers. They hire part-time and temp, you know, with the expectation if the, you know, recession really go comes deep, then they're going to get rid of these people. Uh, so a lot of part-time jobs are being hired, but they're counted as a regular job, whether it's part-time or full-time. So that's going on too. I think the numbers are weaker than they than they're indicating. Uh, and you got to remember, even even the large business uh, numbers, and large business isn't hurting as much as small business. You got to remember that uh, within that, the tech sector now is clearly beginning to weaken mm. and weaken fast, uh, and uh, a lot of hiring freezes on, uh, which means that the next step, next couple of months, will be. Um, uh, layoffs going on. So the tech sector trend within the big business, uh, large business um, uh, data, uh, I think is going to lead lead even that sector down. Uh, but that's kind of like peeling the onion and, and giving you uh, what's going on underneath those numbers, uh, which net aren't as great as they look. You know, it's not collapsing yet, but it's not as great as they report them. Here's a uh, uh, next article, and I think it's uh, uh, related. I'd like to know how also how this is going to affect our economy and the jobs. OPEC and allies move to slash oil production, eliciting blistering White House response. So OPEC plus one, Russia apparently have made a decision. It certainly appears it may be retaliation, shall we say, for that. I mean, I'm just uh, that's subject. I mean, I'm just guessing. But for the um, the uh, the move for some kind of a price cap in the EU. But at any rate, if you could talk about the slash in oil production, what that means to everybody, and again, how that's going to affect our economy, jobs, things that's going on here, Dr. Jack. Well, you know, economically, uh, that production cut, two million barrels a day, is is significant. Uh, politically, of course, it's a slap in the face for Biden, and it, you know, it's it's important to uh, uh, reflect on what that means uh, in terms of geopolitics and the U.S. empire, and that is the U.S. empire clearly can no longer dictate, say it wants something, and uh, the rest of the world jumps, right? Uh, that's not happening anymore. The Saudis and OPEC are, are siding with Russia on this for financial reasons, not because they love Russia, you know. Uh, but the U.S. Uh, global empire uh, can't uh, really uh, deliver on what it wants the way it used to want. And that's why uh, Biden is so upset. And so is Congress. You know, Congress is jumping around, Lindsey Graham and others, talking about, uh, oh, they're going to put sanctions on on Saudi Arabia yeah, sure. Uh, you want to buy a bridge in Brooklyn? I mean, it, that's so dumb. That's the arrogance of empire. That's, uh, you know, election politicking and so forth. But it's an indication. I mean, you know, in the past, the U.S. would never think about that. Uh, in terms of its uh, economic impact, um, we're already seeing it beginning to occur. It's going to raise gas prices 25 to 40 cents a gallon, I think, at least here. Uh, you know, out here in California, Northern California, it's it's well over seven dollars already uh, everywhere, Ooh. and it's it's already uh, beat the records of June. The prices are up over uh, the record increases that occurred in in June. Uh, so that's certainly going going to cut uh, consumption, and it's not going to make people happier when November elections come along. 
A couple of things. One, yesterday we were talking with one of our uh, regular analysts, Laith Maroof, who said he watched the meeting, the the, o- the OPEC Plus meeting, and that the ministers or the press conference, and that some of the OPEC ministers were putting up charts showing how much profit American oil companies are adding to the price per barrel and and plus state and local gas taxes. And so their basic point was, don't blame us for your increase in costs when you all are basically price gouging. Cut your profit. Don't ask us to increase our production. You just cut your profit and your price will go down. That That's, that's one point. The other thing, we now have people like Ro Kahana who are saying, oh, we must pause or not sell the weapons to Saudi Arabia. Jack, I don't see uh, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and, 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 and GE and Boeing deciding to cut out those incredibly profitable weapon sales to make the oil companies happy. I don't think that one's going to fly, no pun intended. Jack Rasmus. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, it's all Ro Khanna's talking uh, nonsense, and he probably knows it. Uh, there's no way they're going to stop a U.S. war production and sales, um, especially export sales. Uh, uh, to, and and uh, Bin Salman in, uh, you know, the prince there in Saudi Arabia, he knows it. He knows it. He knows he can do this, and uh, nothing's really going to change because uh, that's all baked in. Those sales are baked in for quite some time. Uh, plus, you know, the U.S. has not given up its uh, its uh, political and military objectives here with regard to Iran, and uh, the Saudis are the linchpin for that, right? Uh, so that's not going to that's not going to change uh, the politics and the war production. And, but but it's true. You know, U.S. oil companies are price gouging the hell out of the American consumer. You know, over half of the current uh, consumer price index rise is oil and energy, over half. You know, uh, that's why the Fed uh, action isn't going to shake that part of the inflation out. Uh, it's going to continue. As I said, inflation is not going to come down to be, uh, you know, below four or five percent, even even in a deep recession. It's still going to continue because we got all this price gouging going on and we got all this supply problems going on. Um, and, uh, you know, another thing interesting here about the oil companies, uh, they are now pressuring the Biden administration to allow them to uh, uh, export more U.S. oil mm-hmm. uh, to to the Europeans because the Europeans are going to freeze this winter, right? <laughs> they got no oil and they got even less natural gas, uh, you know, um, and they're going to get their way. You know, they're going to get their way. Uh, Biden's going to let them export it because Biden could not get uh, OPEC uh, to fill the gap of Russian oil uh, to Europe, right? I mean, he's so desperate, he's even... Uh, uh, dropping sanctions on uh, on uh, Venezuela and saying, "Okay, you guys, we're buddies now. You can export your oil to Western Europe." You know, I mean that that shows how desperate they are to get oil to Western Europe here. Uh, and and it's also an indication that uh, you know, as the U.S. 
drives Russia out of the European economy, not just in energy and in everything. U.S. corporations are moving in and they're charging much higher prices for gas and oil and everything else. You know, it's it's really a, a, a game that the U.S. is playing where it's really um, putting Europe on its economic knees and taking advantage of it. And even the Germans are starting to talk about, hey, why are we paying so much for this LNG gas? Uh, well, they don't understand that the U.S. is exploiting the hell out of them as it tightens its economic grip uh, all over Europe, not just its NATO political grip. Let me put two things together. This is an article, CNBC. Some countries, including friendly ones, sometimes achieve astronomical prices for their gas. Of course, that brings it with it problems that we have to talk about. Economy Minister Robert Habeck. So he's starting to wake up a little bit. And that takes us to this article. The EU is preparing for blackouts this winter amid an energy crisis, an energy supply crunch tied to the war in Ukraine. Uh, they left out tied to the sanctions on Russia could cause widespread blackouts in the European Union this winter. Your thoughts, Dr. Rasmus? Yeah, well, you know, there's a there's talk about, oh, the Germans have uh, stored 90 percent of their needs. Uh, well, that's uh, as as far as October is concerned, that 90 percent will disappear totally uh, in about four weeks come come the winter. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the Germans and the Europeans should really worry. Uh, two of the um, uh, you know pipelines are shut down. And I understand uh, the other pipelines, only seven and a half percent gas is flowing now. I don't know if that's true. But that's what I read is flowing through the the, the Turkey pipeline, pipeline, you know, and mm -hmm. and once the Russia ups its counteroffensive here, you can bet that the Ukraine pipeline is going to shut down. Uh, so they're going to be without any kind of gas except whatever the U.S. can ship uh, uh, LNG, you know, uh, to terminals, which isn't much because they don't have enough ships uh, and they don't have big enough terminals in Europe yet to uh, really make up the whole volume loss uh, from Russian gas. And uh, that means, yeah, the Europeans are, are worried, and rightly so. Uh, they're, they're going to be in deep doo-doo here come uh, January. We were talking offline, Garland and I, <clears throat> about the fact that all uh, evidence leads to the United States having blown up Nord Stream 2, but they, mis they made a mistake and they, didn't, they blew up line A in two, but not line B. So some gas could still flow through that pipeline once it's checked and, and recertified. Uh, and so I think the United States made a huge mistake and it's going to be exposed for having made that huge mistake. And people are going to be even more demanding, turn it up. Now we know we can get some gas through it. Turn that thing up and let's get moving instead of let's follow these sanctions to our detriment. Dr. Rasmus. Yeah, Nord Stream 1 has uh, two pipelines, A and B, and Nord Stream 2 has two. And as I understand it, uh, three of those four uh, have been, uh, you know, punctured, you might say. And there's still one that 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 could could be used. Uh, it, you know, this sabotage thing is very interesting First of all, uh, I don't think you're ever going to hear who did it. And if you don't hear who did it, that means Russia didn't. Because if Russia did it, it would be all over <laughs> the media, right? With evidence. 
Yeah, with evidence. Yeah, if Russia did it. So uh, somebody else did it. Uh, I believe the CIA knows who did it, but you'll never hear their report of who did it because that would mean uh, it would, um, you know, uh, Russia would be uh, exonerated. Exonerated. There you go. Right. Would be exonerated. And they just want to leave it sort of silent suggestion that, well, we don't know who did it. Maybe the Russians, maybe the Russians did it. Right. Uh, but they know. Uh, they they know. Well, they they know because they did it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they know because because they did it. Somebody kind of, did it. Kind somebody, of like the old Chris Rock joke, right? Well, and, and, and I know I this. It, I know this, Jack. I didn't do it. Yeah, I can tell you that. I, I'll bet you, and this is just speculation on my part. It's either the UK or the Polish special forces did it. That's what I think. Okay. Yeah, but but, that, but I'll add this. I don't think there's any way either one of those would take an action that dramatic unless it was either sanctioned or and or assisted by the U.S. What do you think? I don't know. Polls are kind of crazy, you know. <laughs> but here's my point, Jack. Now that we know that part of the pipeline is still functional, I think that realization is going to even heighten the demand that they turn on that one functioning element of the pipeline. And whereas people last week in Germany were in the streets screaming, turn on Nord Stream 2, there will be even more people in the streets saying, turn on the half of Nord Stream 2 that works. Yeah, you're probably right. Uh, but, you know, the Europeans, including Schultz in Germany, you know, uh, they're terrified of uh, the U.S. They're, they're, they're terrified the, the U.S. could put screws to their economy, you know, and they'll mess their pants here uh, before they uh, actually listen to their people. Um, you know, that, that's just an indi further mm -hmm. indication that Europe is, has become an economic satrapy of the United States here. Uh, and they're they're totally under the U.S. control here, uh, almost a colony. <laughs> it's right, almost. <laughs> yeah, almost. <laughs> uh, last uh, but not least, the World Bank is meeting, and uh, before they're saying the the IMF World Bank meeting are the last stop before a coming economic storm. Uh, last time I checked, the IMF and the World Bank are pretty good at creating economic storms. We only got about two minutes. Yeah, well, you know, the IMF uh, and the World Bank are, are institutions of the American economic empire, and they do pretty much uh, what uh, the U.S. wants. A good example is uh, the IMF, uh, you know, coming out uh, against the British Tories uh, policy uh, here called the mini budget, you know, uh, which caused the uh, bond markets to uh, really have a heartburn. Uh, the IMF said, oh, you're wrong. Well, that's really the U.S. saying to Britain, you know, uh, you're wrong in this this policy. You're upsetting the bond markets here. Uh, so, you know, you, you got to remember the IMF is really there to bail out countries whose currencies uh, collapse. Uh, but they're collapsing everywhere. <laughs> you know, the pound is down 35 percent, the currency. The euro is down 22 percent. Uh the yen is down 20 percent. Uh, even even the Chinese yuan is down 7 percent. Uh, U.S. Fed monetary and dollar policies are really putting the screws to the rest of the world through the currency markets here and other markets. Uh, and you got to you got to remember, compare this to 2013 when the Fed started raising rates and uh, all this problem began to occur in emerging markets. 
called the the taper tantrum. I don't know if you remember that. And the Fed reversed its course at that time. Well, the Fed ain't reversing now. And the Fed is telling the rest of the world, you know, it's flipping its fingers at the rest of the world and says, we don't care. The U.S. empire doesn't care uh, what stress you're going through. Uh, we're going to take care of inflation mm-hmm. here at home uh, no matter what, mm-hmm. no matter what. So, uh, you know, go scratch. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. Enjoy your weekend, and we look forward to having you back. Always glad to join you guys. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Biden pardons thousands convicted of marijuana possession under federal law. The move represents a fundamental change in America's response to a drug that's been at the center of a clash between culture and policing for more than half a century. How significant is this, and is it a signal as we move closer to the November midterm elections? For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He has experience, years of experience, on the front line of public policy formation, having served as a special assistant to former Virginia Governor L. uh, uh, Douglas Wilder, and he now hosts the Gary Flowers Show every weekday morning from 9 to 11 a.m. on 101.3 FM and 990 a.m. in Richmond, Virginia. Gary Flowers, as always, Gary, welcome back. Thank you so much for the invitation. And what a what a apt topic. Um, everything that elected officials, or may I say politicians, do usually has a political motive. In this case, uh, President Biden, it is very curious that 30 days before an election, he makes a move with respect to uh, pardoning and the uh, toward decriminalization of marijuana when Democrats need a lot of young voters uh, to maintain the House for Democratic control uh, and perhaps the Senate, not to mention other races across the country. So I think there is definitely a political motive. That said, I think this is long overdue as a policy measure. Uh, You know, I I remember people I knew who who, uh, did a lot of marijuana. They never were violent. They just wanted to eat all your burritos. <laughs> well, you know, I'm with you. I, I never like to say when somebody does the right thing, you shouldn't have done that or get on them too hard. But I do look at it and, and I'm with you. You know, the Biden administration said they were going to address it and they get wait till the last minute and they're kind of in a bad spot and they do this. But when you start reading into it, it only it doesn't apply to people who are convicted of selling or distributing marijuana. And the truth is, in the black community, there's a lot of people who have records where they can't get a job. They can't get student loans, public housing, public housing, on and on. And it was they had a couple of nickel bags or dime bags a week. You know, they were kids. They were, teen. you know, they were maybe 19, 20 years old. They were maybe in a poor community, didn't have a lot of opportunity, whatever the case may be. But there's a lot of people they didn't have 
have fifty thousand dollars worth of drugs in a and 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 a bunch of guns. It's, there's a lot of people that I and grew up with. It's a nonviolent offense. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go yes. ahead. Sorry about that. As a nonviolent offense, I think that the point that the distinction that you made uh, rings true in that this is just simple possession, and you know, then when you add in the factor of socioeconomic depravity. Many people who sell drugs are not doing so because they're just criminally minded. They're trying to solve an economic uh, gap in their life that the socioeconomics of their environment don't provide. I have a friend of mine who runs a, uh, in Freddie Gray's neighborhood, runs a nonprofit to help people there. He spent a bunch of years in jail. He told me the story. He got laid off. He had uh, like a couple of kids he had to feed. He got laid off in December because, you know, when the weathers get bad, whatever he did, they laid you off. He took his last check and went out and bought a big bag of weed because he didn't have any way to make money and went out, started selling drugs in, to survive, and he didn't have much education, and that's how he ended up in jail. Of course, he got out, turned his life around. But that, there's so many stories like that of people who, he wasn't just, I'm going to be a criminal. He was in a point of desperation. The MAGA GOP has never been about, quote, unquote, life, only power. I'm going to combine two stories here. This first story the cat's been out of the bag for some time regarding Republicans' insincere support of quote-unquote life. If life were the issue when it comes to abortion, the party would not put provocative health and lives at risk with forced birth laws. Let's take that and add to it Republican crisis and Herschel Walker race was nearly two years in the making. We now know that Herschel Walker has been uh, accused of, and there is evidence to support the allegation, that he paid a woman to have to abort one of his children. In fact, now we now she's even claiming she's the mother of one of his other kids. But anyway, the point in all of this, Gary, is there are Republican analysts on record saying, oh, we can support Herschel Walker as they claim to be right to lifers as he paid a woman or is alleged to have paid a woman to have an abortion because it's not about abortion. It's always been about power. Gary Flowers. Absolutely. It's pure power. And let's just unpack the knapsack on Herschel Walker uh, as a candidate for the Republican Party. All they need is a brown face so they can check the box and say, we're not racist. Mm -hmm. Herschel Walker is black. But then it's more devious than that. To put a dim-witted, perhaps concussed individual such as brain-injured individuals such as Herschel Walker, who has questionable morality, uh, then you, you, you degrade the image of black men as well. And the Republican Party, according to Noam Chomsky, uh, is the most dangerous organization on the planet. And I think the candidacy of Herschel Walker is further evidence thereof. Well, and here's the other thing. I remember a few years ago, you, you two might remember it. There was a member of Congress who was a Republican, and they found out that he had paid for, like, his girlfriend's abortion or something, and he left office. I think he might have been from Pennsylvania. Here's the bottom line, too. And, and, and it gets back to this. The the issue of abortions doesn't affect the wealthy anyway. The class of people now, they're all millionaires. So all the Republicans who are in Congress, 
What do they care? If you're poor and your state doesn't allow an abortion, you just go to an, you can't go to another state. You can't get one. If you're rich, it doesn't matter if you got to go to another country. You can go everywhere yeah. you want. So it comes down to an issue of economic class. And I think they kind of dupe their supporters into believing they're all in for for abortion. When And every time you turn around, you find out one of those flew, flew somebody out somewhere to get an abortion. Gary. Well, it's even, I mean, I, I even am more conspiratorial than, than that. Um, it, you know, white people as we know them, Europeans and the like around the world, only make up 7% of the world's population. And I believe that they're the, the right-wing uh, fascist uh, political leanings of states, I mean, countries such as Sweden and Hungary and Germany and, and others, is a way to depopulate communities of color and make sure that white population grows. What about the the obvious statements that are now being made by Republicans that, well, right to life, that's not our primary concern. It's about power and the way that they are selecting people want under the cloak of diversity, whether it's Michael Steele, whether it's Clarence Thomas, they're they're promoting people of color who are not really qualified for the positions that they're quoting them for, uh, uh, touting them for, but they roll them out anyway. They want to claim to be diverse and they're trying to sell us a pig and a pope. Well, I mean, just in the, the Commonwealth of the Confederacy here in Virginia, Winston Sears is on the ticket because she is a dark brown skinned black woman who carried an AK-47 in her campaign ads. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of power is you put anybody in the office, in this case, to appeal to communities of color, particularly the African-American community, you put a black face on the ballot, but it doesn't matter because under the power structure of the, of the GOP, they're not going to have an independent vote anyway. They're going to vote the way they're told to vote. And so from a black perspective, uh, it's what old folk used to say in the barbershop, all skin folk ain't kin folk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with you on that. There's a, interesting stuff about uh, Hunter Biden, federal agents chargeable, see chargeable tax gun purchase case against Hunter Biden. You know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I, I, you know, a lot of people see the issue of Hunter Biden through the lens of ideology. I see it through the end, like I do everything else, through the lens of race and class. Here we're talking about black folks who are in jail for uh, two nickel bags of weed. Literally, I know somebody had two nickel bags of weed, got arrested and charged with distribution. You know, I grew up in a black community. I saw that kind of stuff. And yet Hunter Biden, here's the real deal. He's white and wealthy. That's why he can get you can put videos of crack and everything all over. If he was black, if he had a nickel bag of weed, he'd be in he'd be Brittany Griner right here in in, uh, in 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 the U.S. Your thoughts? Well, let's unpack. Let's unpack that knapsack. How did Hunter Biden get to be wealthy? He was born to a wealthy father. How did his father get to be wealthy? Barely out of law school, accused of plagiarism never ever considered a good lawyer goes to the US Senate and it's a it's a good salary but it's not a wealthy salary <laughs> 
how do politicians come into office, a single father, with not any money really in the bank, always claiming that he doesn't, and end up so wealthy that his son gets to go around the world and get appointed to boards? There is something unholy and something criminal in elective office where elective office holders come in at one tax bracket and leave two tax brackets higher with no increase in salary. Uh, can I add this? And if you notice something, it's not always them. Their wives get a job working yeah. for some big bank, their sons, their sisters, their, everybody around them certainly has, certainly has a great job. And nobody's asking the question from Hunter Biden's laptop email uh, chain, Who's the big guy that was supposed to get 10 percent of the cut? Nobody's asking that. Oh, but, Gary, one of the ways I know that Joe Biden made a lot of his money, you got to talk about you can't ever talk about corn pop. You got to remember <laughs> corn pop. Corn pop was a major player in the game. Um, then there's that. <laughs> there you go. And, and then there's that. This is very interesting to me. Uh, young people. This is from Responsible Statecraft. Want to cut defense budget and arm sales to Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, according to polls, and add to that, the military this quarter has missed its recruiting targets by almost 40 percent. So you've got young Americans appear highly skeptical of Washington's ability to improve the world through military force, uh, according to new polls from the Eurasia Group Foundation. You couple that with the hard numbers that the Army, the Air Force, and the Marines missed their recruiting numbers, that says young people aren't buying into the narrative. Gary Flowers. Yes, some young people are not buying into the U.S. military narrative, but they're buying into the skinhead narrative. They're buying into the neo-Nazi narrative. They're buying into the Oath Keeper narrative and other uh, quite nationalist groups. And so there is an under um, scourge in America, over a thousand white nationalist organization that's charted by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And there doesn't seem to be any urgency to disband them. That is as much concern as the lower numbers in the military. And I think what happened too now, what they say here is if you're 29 right now, you came a voting age towards the end of the Obama years. You saw the Iraq surge, the pushes in Afghanistan that haven't worked, et cetera. But here's the other part. I think that young people, here's what's interesting. There are polls saying 60, like 60 to 70 percent of young people uh, like uh, either identify with or see socialism as a positive thing. I think one of the things we're seeing, Gary, is young people are growing up in a time where they're saying – we're getting a bad end of the deal. They're where they get out of the college and they got a, they got a house payment and no house, and then they get a job working at Pizza Hut, and the dude working next to him is way better off because he ain't paying eight hundred and fifty dollars a month for college loans. Your thoughts on all of that? Right. Yes, and so it has a deleterious impact on the education of our citizenry, particularly young people in this country, and how they view themselves in the world. Uh, in most industries today, uh, there are more jobs than applicants. And I, I know that in communities of color, particularly the black community, many young people are, are, are advocating, well, are finding themselves and, and seeking cash payment jobs, DoorDash food delivery, uh, braiding hair, other cash services 
where they don't pay any taxes, they're not getting any Social Security, and they just live for another day making 60 to $80, and then they do the whole process all over again. That is affecting black communities a lot more than, than white ones. What this also indicates to me, there's this narrative about young people these, these, uh, being disconnected. And they aren't. They don't seem to be disconnected. They they seem to understand what's going on. They're choosing yes. other outlets to ex- express their displeasure. So as we move towards the midterms, it'll be very interest, interesting to see the turnout in terms of voting for these demographics because many of them, I believe, are they are quote unquote disconnecting from the electoral process. But that doesn't mean that they're disconnected from politics. Gary Flowers, we've got a minute. And I, and I think that we saw this in 2016, where 50 percent of the eligible electorate chose not to vote. I think young people are making definite decisions to unplug from society. Uh, they don't see any progress being made by uh, the halls of Congress at, at the federal, state, or, or local level. And they are dis- detaching from society. And that cannot be good uh, in any civilized um, in, in any civilized nation. Gary Flowers, as always. Man, first of all, enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much for your time and your analysis today, and we look forward to having you back. Absolutely. I'm sorry I missed you last week at the Congressional Black Caucus, but it was a great gathering after three years of, of absence. Well, you'll miss me there next year as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks, Gary. Talk to you soon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Middle East Eye reports U.S. accuses OPEC Plus of aligning with Russia. Gulf states deny politics at play. The UAE says production cut was technical and not political. But Washington says it is exploring ways to reduce OPEC's control over energy prices. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an author and journalist working for peace and social justice. He writes extensively about U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East with a focus on Palestine. His latest book is entitled Settler Colonialism in Palestine and Kashmir. Robert Fantina, as always, Robert, welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So ministers from a group of oil exporting countries led by Saudi Arabia and Russia agreed on Wednesday to slash output by two million barrels a day, prompting pushback from the U.S. and igniting fears that it could propel global inflation higher. The decision came despite heavy lobbying by Washington in Gulf capitals against the move. Quote, it's clear that OPEC plus is aligning with Russia with today's announcement, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said aboard Air Force One. Well, first, Robert, I'm going to use a very technical political science term. Uh, duh. Since, <laughs> since Russia is a part of OPEC+, Plus, 
one would think they might align with their own interests. Robert Fantina, your thoughts? Yes, there, there is certainly that. And the fact that uh, the government of Saudi Arabia anticipating a, uh, a recession doesn't always stuck with a lot of cheap oil. So they'll, they'll uh, get the best price they can now. But Russia is part of, part of this. It's part of OPEC. So, of course, they're going to do what's in their best interest. Uh, and they're going to, to – right now, Russia is hemorrhaging money with the war in Ukraine and is going to want to uh, replenish their coffers. This is kind of one of the ways they're doing it. The other thing that I think is important to look to, – to learn from this is the reduced influence that Washington has on world governments. There was a time when the United States president would uh, snap his fingers and tell OPEC, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that, and they would obey, basically, as, as it does with, or has done with many countries in the world. But that influence now has waned greatly, which is a good thing for the world. You know, what's interesting, if you look at this whole scenario, what's happened over the last couple of weeks, about um, a week and a half ago, two weeks maybe, the Russians made a deal that was brokered by the Saudis to release a bunch of Azov people and some other people with the Saudis and the Turks. And Wilmer and I discussed that, and we were kind of like, well, let's see where the next shoe drops. We, you know, kind of, it was kind of obvious something was going on. There was some level of diplomacy. And now this happens, and we hear that Russia and the Saudis went into the OPEC meeting and said, this is what we want to do. And of course, as the big honchos there, the rest of the OPEC went along. And it, and, and and now we hear the U.S. say, we've got to retaliate. We've got to stop selling them and sanctioning them. And it's the difference. You have see the Russians saying, let's use diplomacy. We'll get some allies and we'll accomplish our goals. And you see Congress now, Ro Khanna, saying, we must get our revenge. It's, you know, using the, um, the iron fist as opposed to the velvet glove of diplomacy. Your thoughts? Yes. And this is the way the United States has operated uh, for centuries. Uh, they believe that might, might makes right, and that if one country or organization of countries, such as OPEC, does something that displeases them in any way, then uh, it's not a matter of sitting down at a table and talking to the leaders of those countries. It's a matter of sanctions. It's a matter of threats. Uh, it's a matter of uh, having military uh, maneuvers uh, at their borders uh, to force and intimidate them uh, to to do the U.S.'s bidding. But as you, you mentioned, uh, Russia isn't doing that. I mean, Russia should have done diplomatic, diplomatic actions in other areas, but in this particular situation, Russia and Saudi Arabia sat down and came to some agreement as diplomatically related countries should do. It's a lesson the United States has not learned, and it doesn't look like it's going to learn it anytime soon. You know, as I look at how this is all playing out, two things. One, you now have, as Garland mentioned, people like Ro Kahana saying, oh, well, now we need to uh, stop providing the Saudi uh, Air Force with replacement parts for planes. And we, well, when we were asking y'all to stop doing that in, in response to the war in in, uh, in Yemen, oh, no, you can't seem to figure that one out. But now that Saudi Arabia doesn't want to give you gas, oh, now we know where our leverage points are. And the other thing is that I remember reading and hearing that one of the reasons why the United States invaded Iraq was because Saddam Hussein was petitioning OPEC to revalue oil 
off of the dollar onto the euro. And as a result of his wanting to do that, the United States said, well, we're going to go in here and invade your country. Well, we don't seem to have those kind of options available to us like we did just a few years ago. Your thoughts? Yes, it's interesting. That you, uh, you made several interesting points. One is the United States government never said that was in any way the motivation for the invasion of Iraq. It was all the weapons of mass destruction that, of course, didn't, didn't exist. Uh, so that, that was a, a major thing there. And as you said, that that leverage doesn't exist currently. Also, you mentioned that when the United States hesitated to stop selling weaponry to uh, to Saudi Arabia because of its its war against the people of Yemen, oh no, that was that wasn't good enough. The, the violation of the of the human rights of the Yemeni people was not sufficient reason for the U.S. to stop selling weapons. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! The cre- the the creation of the worst human. Uh, mm-hmm. via uh, catastrophe, human man, the, the creation of the worst man-made human catastrophe wasn't big enough. Right. Yeah, it's not just a violation of human rights. It's, it's a catastrophic violation of human rights. I just said the, the world's worst in, in the, on the planet today. That wasn't enough. But oil might cost more? Oh, no. Let's, let's start sanctioning. Let's start uh, making threats. Let's start accusing uh, Saudi Arabia getting cozy with Russia, uh, because when it comes to power and profits, there's no limit to what the United States will do to achieve them. Human rights, not so much. Here's the thing about it, too. And even then, the U.S. can't do that because they're still trapped by their own empire. Here's what I mean. If you look at a map, you can quickly figure out why the U.S. Is, wants the Yemen war. Because on one side of, of where Saudi Arabia transits to the sea is the Straits of Hormuz. And the only way that Saudi has two, Saudi Arabia has two options. They can go through the Straits of Hormuz, which is controlled by Iran, or they can go through the Straits of Bab el-Mindab, which is controlled by Yemen, if Yemen is in control of their country. So the, the U.S. is not going to stop that war because then basically Iran will have control of both straits that uh, the Saudis use to get their oil out. So even because even then, no matter how mad they get at the Saudis, the U.S., because it's an empire, because it's trying to cro- choke, cro- uh, control all the sea routes, still cannot stop supplying the Saudis with weaponry, et cetera, for the Yemeni, uh, the Yemen war. Your thoughts? Right. Because doing so, as, as you rightly mentioned, would give more uh power and influence to Iran, which the United States has determined is a, a moral enemy for absolutely no reason. And the United States being the, trying to be the world hegemon, doesn't want to do that. So regardless of what it means in terms of human rights for people around the world, as I've always said, the U.S. government is interested in power and profits only. So this situation puts them in a, a, a difficult spot because what are they going to do? They can't defy Saudi Arabia completely because that might uh, increase Iran's influence, but they still don't like what Saudi Arabia has done. So they're between a rock and a hard place. Uh, if, they were, if the U.S. government were a more reasonable institution, then it could work with all these countries for everyone's mutual benefit, but that's never been the goal. There's an interesting piece in Orinoco Tribune, Dirty Money, Meet the U.S. Agent Driving the CIA-Led Riots in Iran. 
There are Iranian women, though a minority, who are not in favor of the mandatory veil, a legitimate grievance and opinionated dissatisfaction to which humankind is entitled. And then there are people leading a fraudulent anti-hijab movement with a barrel aimed at Tehran. Masume Masish Gomi is a Washington weapon of choice for flaring up the largest color revolution attempt in Iran today. One of the things I find interesting about this so-called protest is I've been to Iran twice and they aren't women aren't required to wear hijabs. They're just required to wear modest scarves on their hair over their hair. Mm-hmm. And so help me help me out here cuz either I'm confused and stupid or this argument is false. Well, I was in Iran in 2017. I was in Tehran and Mashhad, which is a city in the northern part of the country. And Tehran was a bustling city, teeming with people. Mm-hmm. And there were women there with a, a headscarf, but I could see the hair in front of the scarf and hanging down behind the scarf. And they had something on their head, certainly. But it wasn't covering their head. It certainly wasn't covering their face. Occasionally, I saw women with... Uh, they were covered head to toe and just in black and just a, a cutout for the eyes, but that was very rare. But women in Tehran were driving cars by themselves with other women, with men. They're walking with men wearing uh, jeans and or skirts and, and high heels, whatever. Just anything that you would see in any city that just had a scarf on their head that did not cover their hair, did not certainly cover their face. Now, there's been a new president since then, so maybe things have changed a little bit. But the idea that all women are forced to wear hijabs is not something that I saw while I was there. And as you mentioned, you didn't see it when you were there. No. Well, let me add this. They passed a law in France where people can't wear hijabs. So you're mad at them because they ostensibly say you have to wear a hijab when that isn't even the case. But France says you can't wear them. I would argue that's a human rights issue. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia just sends somebody like, I don't know, like 60 years or something crazy for like, tweeting something in favor of women's rights, but we don't see anything but Iran. And it's so obvious, the hypocrisy is obvious that it's the United States wants to overthrow the government of Iran, so we're playing the fake human rights game. Robert. That is completely true. It's only recently, I believe, that uh, women have been allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia, yet the United States doesn't say anything about that, and women have been driving in Iran for I don't know how long. But it is, it is hypocrisy. It is just a desire for a so-called regime change, which the United States has been pushing ever since the public government of the Shah of Iran was overthrown uh, 47 years ago. Uh, and that's what this this woman, uh, Masih Al-Najad, is, is fostering. The MEK, which is an anti-Iranian organization based outside of Iran, because it has no, no support in Iran, is... Uh, is supported completely by the United States. The MEK pays uh, U.S. Uh, government officials large sums of money to speak at their various meetings. So the United States is looking for regime change, not because it's concerned about human rights abuses, not because it con- it's concerned that people in, in Iran don't have equal rights. It only does it because it does not want Iran to be a powerful nation that does not uh, toe the U.S. party line. 
And I, I want to be really clear here. In the time that I and I was there twice in 2016, and then I think February of 2017, there are a lot of women walking around Iran with hijabs on, but they're doing it voluntarily. Right. In fact, did you notice when you when you're flying into Tehran Airport, everybody just about everybody on the plane is just as uncovered as they want to be, but then as soon as the plane lands on on the tarmac, all these scarves they just pull out their scarves, they put their scarves on their head, they go on about their business. It's it's not that they are required to wear hijabs. That that's my that's my only point. Right. When when I was there to get a conference, uh, there was an American woman who was also speaking at the conference. She arrived um, shortly before and we met at the airport in Tehran. And she had a scarf on her head. It was just kind of resting on her head. Right. It wasn't wrapped around. Her hair was long in the back. I could see the, the, the front uh, because that's the, the rule is you have to have some kind of head. I don't know. I don't even want to call it covering because it's not covering it. But you have to have something. And so, as you mentioned, when uh, people are arriving at the airport, they look at the scarf put on their head. But they're not concealing their hair. They're not putting it on the head and wrapping it around the neck and in a very strict manner. Some women do, and that's their choice, which they are certainly entitled to do, uh, although not in France. Uh, <laughs> but this is not what the, the law requires. At least it wasn't when I was there. Let me put a couple stories together. Hundreds of Israeli settlers storm Al-Aqsa Mosque. The other one is Israeli settlers attack Palestinian school as confrontations grow in the occupied West Bank. And when I, I'm thinking like this, when I read that, the settlers are attacking schools and confrontations grow. That's not a confrontation. That's the no. settlers attacking Palestinian schools, which, of course, is the propaganda. Your thoughts on that, Robert? It's the same thing. Why this? Why there is an international outcry on this? I don't understand. These are Israeli settlers protected by the Israeli military. They're going. They're breaking into these schools and attacking school children and teachers. This is an abomination. Why it isn't being uh, announced as that and and publicized throughout the world? Why CNN and MSNBC and all the others are making this headline news is completely beyond me. Imagine if. The uh, Palestinians went into uh, Israeli school and started attacking uh, students and and teachers. That would make the, the headlines. This is the the same kind of uh, misinformation that or, or lack of information that we see in the Western media all the time concerning uh, Palestine and Israel. Well, we're supposed to get upset about hijabs in Iran, but we're not supposed to get upset about settlers. And I think it's important to recognize that these are settlers in a colony uh, that are attacking indigenous Palestinians. And let's add one more story to that. Netanyahu pledges to solve Israel's housing crisis by annexing more Palestinian land. Israeli opposition leader Netanyahu vowed to authorize large construction projects in the West Bank in favor of Israeli settlers as he continues to escalate his attempt to garner support ahead of elections. And now, somehow, we're supposed to back Israel's play here, authorizing large construction projects in the West Bank, but when uh, Ukrainian citizens hold referendums 
on whether they want to be part of Ukraine or part of Russia, and they decide to be part of Russia, somehow those referendums are illegal. Go ahead, Robert Fantino. Excellent point. It's what the United States wants is, and it'll, it'll name uh, like an election illegal if the results aren't what it what it uh, what it would have done, and it'll support those that may be completely fraudulent if it brings to power a leader that uh, they approve that the U.S. approves of. So there's no idea of fairness. There's no idea of justice. It's just whatever serves. Uh, U.S.'s geopolitical interests. There's no idea of democracy because as right. I, no idea of democracy. because the United States, uh, uh, Joe Biden is running around the world screaming about the United States is defending democracy. The people's voices must be heard. And but again, this referendum is illegal by U.S. standards, and Netanyahu's seizing land. Again, owned by indigenous Palestinians. Oh, that's okay. In violation of the UN and and international law. Yeah, but somehow that's okay. We got forty-five seconds, Robert Fantina. The U.S. again, it doesn't. It it feels that it is above international law. It is above any law, and any of its allies can be also above law unless it's a particular law that that it wants them to adhere to. But there's no idea that the United States has to follow international law because, as I mentioned before, the idea is might makes right, and as long as the United States is the most powerful nation in the world, the government feels it can do anything that it wants to do. Robert Fantina, as always, enjoy your weekend. Thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate your analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The MAGA Republicans have never been about, quote-unquote, life, only power. The cat's been out of the bag for some time regarding Republicans' insincere support for, quote-unquote, life. If it were the issue when it comes to abortion, the party would not put reproductive health and lives at risk with forced birth laws. And I, we tie this to Republican crisis in Herschel Walker race was nearly two years in the making. Georgia Republicans are stuck with a problematic Senate candidate that they saw coming but decided they couldn't stop. For insight into this, and uh, it is uh, Friday, so it is panel time, let's turn to our first panel. We're joined by the co-chair of the Georgia Green Party, Kwaku Lumumba. As always, Kwaku, welcome back. Glad to be back. Thank you for inviting me. We're also joined by a D.C. senior news correspondent, a man with uh, a number of years of experience as a journalist and as a correspondent, Dr. Colin Campbell. As always, Colin, welcome back. Great to be here, gentlemen. Uh, Kwaku, let me start with you because you're the co-chair of the Green of the Georgia Green Party. So, as a as a co-chair of a political party, how do you see this this story unfolding? 
as Republicans now seem to be getting exposed for uh, many who seem to be more concerned with with getting reelected in power than they are with sticking to one of the seems to be one of the core tenets uh, of their party, which is right to life. Thank you for that. And it has been an interesting time in Georgia politics because, you know, from day one, we recognized Herschel Walker as a foil to Raphael Warnock's um, black candidacy. Um, that's all it is. It's, you know, they were looking for a, um, a token black candidate who Georgia voters could resonate with as someone homegrown, um, someone that they would like to have a beer or lemonade with, um, someone that they had celebrated as a hero. And there are so few of them in Georgia that they had to find someone, of course, that um, ran for touchdowns and they got to celebrate um, by drinking beer and watching on television in Herschel Walker. And it's, it's clear that he has presented problems for the Republican Party since day one. And it's also clear that this is highlighting a lot of the contradictions in their own party principles and positions, because, as you mentioned, um, they're showing their true colors, if they hadn't already, that their, my, their main interest is power and control at the expense of principles. And um, they're willing to sacrifice that on the national stage before everybody dies. My concern is um, those sort of contradictions may not sway um, convicted voters away from voting um, according to principles instead of party lines. Let me, before we go to Colin Campbell, looking at the recent polling numbers, uh, before this whole uh, abortion dis, uh, issue came on the scene with Herschel Walker, I want to say that the numbers were really, really close and that Herschel was up a few points. Now, as of a couple of days ago, a uh, Insider Advantage Fox 5 poll shows that Warnock is leading by some say three points, others show him up by as many as 12 points. What are you, what's your sense of the polling numbers and, and is this having the dramatic impact in, in that particular election that most people would expect it to have? I think it hurts um, for sure. You know, in the conversations that I've been having and hearing, it, it does hurt because, you know, at the, at the end of the day, whether they agree or a voter agrees with him or not, their, their trust in his ability to get the job done um, is diminished because of the lies that are being exposed. Um, I think he would have been better served politically if he had said, instead of saying, I didn't do that, to say, well, I did that in the past and my position has changed because we know politicians change their positions on things all the time. But that's not what happened. And so... Um, it is hurting, but because there's a little bit of time before early voting kicks in here, and of course before the November uh, primary happens, it's still time for him to catch up and for people to forget um, this particular issue and decide that, well, we still want Republicans in power and we want to get the state to turn back red from blue. Um, so, you know, the, it's, it's so close that you really can't call it at this point. Dr. Colin Campbell, your thoughts? Well, we can tell that Herschel Walker is a flawed candidate, right? But it really does not 
indicate that by his competitive numbers when it comes to polling. Uh, we know that, that Walker, uh, there have been stories about him holding a gun to his former wife's head. Um, we know that, you know, in recent days, even his own son has come out against him. And this is after he, uh, back in, I believe it was May this year, or June this year, where he acknowledged that he had another son uh, that he was initially denying. And then a few days after that, Within that week, he was forced to admit that he had more children mm -hmm. that he wasn't admitting to at first. Uh, you know, he said some other just outlandish things like uh, talking about how why, why do apes still exist if man has evolved from apes? He's talked about climate change really being a farce, that it's the U.S. swapping air with China, China's bad air and the U.S.'s good air replacing each other. Uh, you know, and, and of course, we have the abortion revelations that have come out recently where we find out that, uh, you know, that at least it's being reported that he paid for an abortion for, for a woman who also says that she's, she has a child mm -hmm. from him. And we don't even know if that same child, or maybe, you know, if that same child is the, one of the original children that he later admitted to after denying that he had other children at first. It's just a, to me, it seems like such a mess, but if I was to predict, uh, I'm definitely no Nate Silver, but I will say that obviously this would look better for Ralphie Warnock. Uh, at the same time, though, we have a GOP that is desperate for Walker to win. Uh, we have a former president who desperately wants Walker to win, and that's why they're either, they have either been silent or they're still standing behind him. We, in, in recent days, we even had uh, Dana Loach, who's a, a GOP uh, sycophant or mm -hmm. spokesperson, however you want to describe her, uh, saying that she didn't care right. if Walker uh, aborted endangered uh, baby eagle's eggs, right. uh, bald eagle's eggs. She just wants power in the Senate. So they even know that Walker is a flawed candidate, but they're using that to say, well, we are overall objective is to regain power so we don't care. And, and to me, that's a sad statement about American politics, that you could have a candidate so flawed that it doesn't even matter anymore. They just want power. They're, over, they're willing to overlook all of these inequities, all of these foibles to say, yeah, that, that really doesn't matter. We would rather have a candidate who talks about being anti-abortion, who actually may have paid for abortion, rather than a candidate who we're going to blame for using state-funded money to finance other abortions. It's a very weird logic, but I know that for staunch GOP defendants, and supporters, obviously, that this makes sense and that they will still vote for Herschel Walker. Uh, but you do have those who are just saying, listen, th this guy is just way too flawed for me to vote for him. Maybe I'll vote for the other Republicans. Uh, but as far as voting for Walker and, and submitting a vote for that, I'll abstain. And I think that's really what GOP, the GOP party, uh, Republicans in, in Georgia, are worried about, that even though you'll have other voters who are willing to vote for Republicans, they may not vote for Walker, which will be uh, to Warnock's advantage. Quico, let me take a little different angle. You're a member of the Green Party. Of course, I'm an, I'm an independent. I'll take a little different angle on this, and that is I see also this. The people in power don't really care if he's a, uh, a picture of uh, uh, Herschel Walker. And here's what I mean. 
Uh, Wilmer and I, we've talked about this story we reported many, many times. Just before the 2020 election, the CEO of Boeing came out and he says, I don't really care if the Republicans win or the Democrats win, because either way, I'm getting ready to, you know, we're going to we're going to eat over here at Boeing and we're going to eat well, regardless of who is in there. So isn't that kind of a reflection also of a system where you've got these, whether it's the military industrial complex, big pharma, big agro, on and on and on, who say we don't really care who's in Congress. You guys get in there, get the power. We'll feed you some money and get our policies through. Um, Kwaku. Yes, that is really the issue that the average voter should be paying attention to, that both of these parties are different sides of the corporate capitalist coin, um, that regardless of the small issues that they like to sell to the voter, when it comes to backdoor deals, when it comes to international relations, when it comes to major corporations and banks and dealing with getting the the resources to the average person, they're both really um, playing the same tune. Um, they're making sure that independent parties, they're making sure that third um, party organization, political organizations don't have access to the electoral channels that they have access to so that more people's voices can be heard so that true democracy can happen in the United States. Um, those are the kind of contradictions that we see with both the Democratic Party and the Grand Old Party, um, where they want to join together, if you will, to, to keep the average person um, in their place so that they can continue to eat well and make sure that their um, financiers and their partners can continue to eat well in spite of the economic um, struggle, the financial depression that the average person is going through, especially now um, throughout the past couple of years of the pandemic, the coronavirus uh, 19 pandemic, and also um, get leading into this housing crisis, the, the oil, the global oil crisis, all these things in which they're not really um, singing a different tune on that's going to impact beneficially the lives of the average voter. Colin Campbell. Yeah, I mean, it's long been discussed uh, that for black Americans, I'm going to take the, the, the race angle a little bit here, if you don't mind, that they should form their own party. Because obviously you had black Americans here uh, during the founding of this country. And they have been on, uh, they've been pandered to from both sides of the aisle, which is very interesting, especially in the political climate today. And what I mean is, when you had Republicans in the early 20th century, the radical Republicans were the abolitionists. They were the ones that said that uh, enslaved Africans, emancipated black Americans needed to have their own freedom and that they should be uh, given those rights, the equivalent rights. But because of the Southern strategy, you had uh, LBJ uh, and, and the, the, the the new, uh, the new deal, um, later on, you had these, the dynamic shift so that now Democrats seem friendlier to black Americans. But at the same time, when you look at the statistics, when you look at what's really happening, you still have a huge wealth disparity when it comes to black and white Americans, despite black Americans, like I said, being here for millennia. You also have issues when it comes to health care, when it comes to education. And black Americans have definitely more aligned with Democrats in recent years. But now they're starting to say, hey, 
is this really working for us? And now you're starting to see a slight cleave of some black Americans, and I think more from black men, separating themselves from the Democratic Party. At the same time, you're hearing advocates coming from black America saying, listen, neither of these parties are working for your best interests. You need to form your own voting bloc at the very least, which, as we know, trying to form a different party would be increasingly difficult. But but what advocates are saying is you need to form your own voting bloc. Republicans and Democrats are just different sides of the same coin. They just want power. They want those who are the very elite within their party to still be financially successful uh, at your exploitation. And we're seeing this uh, commonly. And now we're seeing this uh, this kind of... Uh, the, the, the derision of both parties and, and some leadership coming from younger, more uh, influential uh, black Americans, like you see with Kanye West, with, with uh, Candace Owens, they're leaning more right. Uh, of course, they're facing ridicule, but they're, they're pointing to those hypocrisies coming from the Democratic Party. Of course, we see the members of the Democratic Party pointing to hypocrisies coming from the Republican Party. But at the same time, black Americans are caught in the middle. Who do we side with so that it actually works to our benefit? And a lot of uh, black Americans are confused at that point. But, yeah, we definitely see members of both parties. And we see those at the very top, the one percenters, still making very uh, still making uh, still benefiting from some of the upheaval that is happening in the in the lower uh, caste system, if you will, of the United States. Uh, Kwaku, really quickly, uh, because you're in Georgia. Well, two things. One, I think was what was more damaging in my mind to Herschel Walker was his son's and 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 uh, Colin references his son Christian's video. I thought that was much more damaging. And when, when your own child comes on television and calls you a hypocrite and says the family told you not to run because all this mess was going to be uncovered. But just really quickly, looking at the numbers, do you think Stacey Abrams and her run for governor benefits from the slide in the polling numbers for Herschel Walker or is that Brian Kemp, Stacey Abrams election going to be totally isolated from the Herschel Walker fiasco? Well, I, she definitely benefits. And the reason why is because uh, the Democrats have been doing something in the, in the South um, and in Georgia in particular. We've been seeing how they've been organizing a voting block, as, um, as my fellow guests uh, mentioned before, with I don't want to say elitist, but I'll say educated um, black candidates and educated in a particular um, background, and that's HBCUs. So you see how they have uh, plucked Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, Raphael Warnock, and other candidates that may not have won, but they're fielding them from HBCUs because the Democrats are recognizing the caliber of graduate that HBCUs are producing and the impact of HBCU graduates on black communities. So they they have this thing that Herschel Walker is separated from, even though he's a black man, he's separated from that group, from that voting block, um, because he didn't go to an HBCU. He didn't graduate from an HBCU. Um, but you have a Hirsch, uh, I'm sorry, a Raphael Warnock and a Stacey Abrams who can come together and benefit from um, whatever happens on the Republican end of things, because Republicans are 
um, not recruiting from HBCUs for candidates. So you have this block, um, and I didn't even mention the Divine Nine and the fraternity-sorority dynamic, Mm -hmm. but you have this situation in which they're able to work together and band together and benefit from any negativity um, of publicity that comes from candidates on the Republican end, and she'll definitely benefit okay. in the long run. U.S. Representative Ro Khanna on Wednesday urged the Biden administration to cut off sales of weaponry and crucial plane parts to Saudi Arabia as the Organization of Petroleum Export Companies, countries OPEC, agreed to slash oil production. He, uh, uh, I'll go to you, Colin, but here, here are my thoughts. Look. OPEC is an individual. You may not like it, but it is an independent organization. They got a right to do what they do. Here's the problem I have. We, uh, you know, the, the, the of course, you've heard it. The, a person who only has a hammer thinks everything's a nail. Ro Khanna didn't say, let's send a diplomat to talk with him. Oh, maybe we can work out a deal. Hey, let's call him over and have a barbecue and a, well, certainly not a beer, but you get the point. Let's try to deal with them as equals and work out a deal. With the U.S., it's always let's pound them into the ground. Let's slash them, smash them, crush them and do something. That's the problem I have with this approach. We'll start with you, Colin Campbell. We do have, uh, you know, this kind of cultural imperialism that seems to take precedent whenever we're dealing with other countries because of our stature on the global stage, because of our geopolitics and our sociopolitical heft uh, within our own country, right? But at the same time, we understand, or at least we've been led to understand, that a lot of this diplomacy is often quid pro quo, right? You, we do this for you. You do this for us. And I think that's what Ro Khanna was alluding to here. You had uh, Biden, who had to not quite plead a mea culpa, but, you know, at least try to couch or be somewhat humbled uh, when meeting the leadership of, of the Saudi Arabian leadership when he did that fist bump because he once condemned them for the death of Jamal Khashoggi and really seemed to say that he was going to treat them as social pariahs and, you know, condemn them with the strongest of rhetoric. But then he had to dial that back, obviously, as we saw the dynamics change when it came to Russia and Ukraine and, of course, the unsustainability of steady energy going to our allied countries. So he had to dial some of that strong rhetoric back. And I think within that, you know, that visualization, the optics of the leader of the U.S., meaning with leadership from Saudi Arabia, and at least having some physical contact. They didn't do a bro hug or anything like that, (laughs) but there was some physical contact for that photo op. What are you going to do to help us out? We, you know, we're not coming down on you as hard as we were before. We understand that. How can you help us out? And if there, and there's the other aphorism that we've heard. If you're not with us, you're against us. So if you are cutting the, your supply to drive up the prices at a time of year when more people need energy, at a time of year when the uh, leadership from the U.S. is looking to uh, influence elections, hopefully, hopefully for them, get some, uh, they want some big victories coming out of that. If you're not willing to help us out here, who are you really siding with here? And I think that kind of makes a, you know, a, a good point when he talks about this, because it does seem like they're trying to play both sides of the fence here when the U.S., uh, when he feels that the U.S. really made some overtures to say, hey, 
Let's try to make a bargain. Let's try to be more affable to each other. I know there was some discord in the past. Let's try to look past it and try to be more amicable. And I think that Saudi Arabia just said, yeah, you know what? No, thanks. We want to make some money here. Um, Quaco, I'll add one other thing. I may be wrong, and but there are a lot of people speculating this. The Saudis and OPEC made it clear they did not want to see any um, price caps going on with Russian oil or any other kind of oil because they feel like, hey, look, we're the ones with the oil. We're going to kind of we work with you to negotiate the price. We're not going to have you bogart us and, 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 and do that. And now the EU and NATO are pushing for this price cap. And I kind of think this might have been retaliation for that. It may have been an elbow to say, hey, you think we told you we don't like this price cap stuff. If you do it, things are going to go in the opposite direction. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it might have been retaliation. Anyway, Quaco, your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of flexing that, of course, is going on between um, these these different nations that um, feel like they have the right to dictate what other nations do and how they operate with their resources. Um, but I also find it interesting how often first-generation American citizens or American-born uh, citizens decide to be on the vanguard of American imperialism. Um, Rokana, you know, is the first first generation. His parents immigrated from India. Um, you have in the same um, party in the Biden administration, uh, Karine Jean-Pierre from, from Haiti um, as the press secretary. You have the Democratic Party doing something very interesting and in bringing this coalition of diverse faces and voices from around the world to represent its imperialism, um, as if many of their parents, the reason why they're here in the first place is their parents were fleeing um, destruction or economic instability from their homes due to American foreign policy, U.S. imperialism. So that, you know, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, contradiction and a paradigm that I think uh, people need to look at and question, you know, wh- what, what really are these people who are speaking on behalf of U.S. imperialism benefiting um, from U.S. imperialism? You know, to your point, just two other names came to mind from the other party. One is Nikki Haley, and the other is Bobby Payush Jindal from Louisiana. How about Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz is another. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's a very that's a very uh, interesting and and astute uh, observation, Kwaku. But I think I think a lot of that has to do. And Colin, I'll, I'll throw this to you. I think uh, I think a lot of that has to do with kind of the indoctrination that a lot of those children go through because, yes, their parents are coming to this country fleeing, in many instances, American colonialism in their, in their countries of origin, but they've bought into America, the land of the free, the home of the brave. They've bought into all of those often used tropes uh, about American exceptionalism and, and, you know, this is the land of opportunity and all of that, all of that kind of stuff. Colin Campbell. 
Yeah, it's really interesting when you speak to people who have come here from other countries and they're just shocked and astounded that <laughs> it's not funny. But but every time I hear the stories, I, I have to say, admittedly, and maybe this is a fault of mine, I'm a little bit amused because they think it's, it is this wild land of opportunity that as soon as they get here, things will be really easy. And they'll have a house in the burbs, you know, without much effort. They'll get a great paying job and they can leave that subpar life that they used to live well behind them. And then when they get to here, they're slapped with the reality that it's really not what they saw on TV. It's really not as advertised. And there is, again, to reference cultural imperialism that we export around the world that, you know, when you come to America, yeah, you can have the, the house with the picket fence and the 2.5 kids. And that's, you know, a standard for American life as we continue to see the effects of an economy that makes socioeconomic mobility much more difficult as we see the wealth disparity growing. Mm -hmm. We know the mm -hmm. reality on the ground and how difficult it right. is for many right. of us to really make it. And when you come from another country, you're not expecting that reality to hit you so hard. And, and as we get out, when I was in Iran, I remember this uh, this uh, this guy in selling selling hats. When he heard me speak English, he said, America, America, take me to America. I want to go to America. <laughs> and I said, why? He said, the beach, the beach. I want to go to the beach and the women at the beach. And what, what amazed me was, to your point about television, <laughs> is how so many people from other countries, their image of this country is shaped by what they see on television. And that is frightening and dangerous. He Kwaku, wants to watch Baywatch. <laughs> that was it. Kwaku Lumumba, Dr. Colin Campbell. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. Have wonderful weekends. We look forward to having you guys back. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Look forward to coming back. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. October 8th, global campaign to free Julian Assange. As part of a global campaign for Julian's release, over a dozen international actions have been planned in solidarity with U.S.-based supporters holding a rally at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., featuring seven of several high-profile speakers, of which our own Garland Nixon is one. For insight into this, let's turn to our next panel. It is Friday, so that means it's panel time. We're joined by the National Organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. Steve, as always, welcome back. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having me back on. We're also joined by a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of Let Roe Go, Winning Abortion Rights, Dr. Jim Cavanaugh. Jim, welcome back. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So actions are planned for Melbourne, Australia, Denver, Colorado, San Francisco, California, Rio de Janeiro, Ottawa, and Tulsa, with more expected to be announced. 
The D.C. protesters will be calling on the Attorney General Merrick Garland to drop the charges against Assange while also denouncing the U.S. government's campaign against him as supporters around the world demand hands off Assange. Steve Poikinen, your thoughts, sir? I'm I'm very, very glad that this uh, finally <laughs> what it seems like where there's uh, an Assange event, a global Assange event that's coming up that's actually gotten the attention of more than well, just Garland uh, and the you know handful of us that have been organizing these over the years. This is fantastic. There's some tremendous speakers that are going to be in D.C. as well as Denver. Uh, I know Kyle Angelone from uh, the Libertarian Institute is going to be in Denver. Uh, this is in conjunction with a surrounding of parliament, the human chain event in London, um, that has attracted the attention finally of a number of, uh, of uh, fairly high profile individuals. Same as in DC. Uh, Misty Winston, who has been the principal organizer of this event for Action for Assange, has been, was saying the other day that she's now getting hit up uh, by all kinds of people basically begging for speaking time at the event. And she's got to be like, no, we're already at three hours. I can't do it. So uh, in terms of progress, I, I really am very, very pleased uh, at how the events are shaping up, where they're headed, what's going on. The, the hope now is that um, more people start to, to pay attention, even though we've been begging for them to do so for a very long time. You know, Jim, I think this is a very important to, because it uh, it creates political pressure just prior to the uh, midterms. And it's cl- one thing's for clear. This is a political issue. It is not legal because if it, it was legal, you certainly can't hold a guy for years in jail for for uh, a uh, being uh, accused of a crime in Britain that only has a one year penalty at worst. Your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> There's no question about that. As you say, you know, he's been in jail for in Britain for how many years? That's at least three years. And, you know, for and he's not there's no crime he's been convicted of in Britain. There's no crime. And it's absolutely, you know, under British law, you know, he should not be even considered for extradition for a political crime. It's a political crime. No question. No way he would be held. And they wouldn't have dismissed this a case where the CIA spied on his lawyers, spied on his attorney client. Uh, 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 discussions and spied on his life and threatened to kill him. So this would have been thrown out of any real courtroom where law and legal rights were uh, an issue. So this is a political uh, political persecution, and the UK is uh, collaborating with the American government to do their political dirty work. Now, it is a great thing that this is happening. Look, you know, I've written at least two, three articles on Assange. I've helped to found the New York City Free Assange Movement. You know, I've been at this for years, and it's just very frustrating that we haven't had the attention that this, you know, issue requires and demands of anybody who has any interest in civil rights, human rights, free speech, et cetera. And this is a great event, and uh, it is getting more attention. And it's especially in the context, I think, of the British situation, where the politics in Britain also leaves an opening for it. Although I don't, of course, the Labour Party isn't going to do anything about it. But, you know, uh, and uh, what's missing for me, of course, is the American media and the American so-called progressive politicians who should be screaming about this. But, you know, they're all... This should be something that we just brought up in the issue in the context of the midterm elections and the pressure on the Democrats to and so-called progressive Democrats to talk about this. But that is still 
criminally missing piece of this puzzle that we need to find a way to get in, get on the table. Switching gears, uh, let's move to Elon Musk renews effort to buy Twitter. The billionaire entrepreneur cryptically suggested he would create an everything app using Twitter as a guide. Steve Poikinen, this whole thing to me has just been odd. Your thoughts? Well, I, so we found out about the, the app X, the one app to rule them all, because there were some disclosure documents or discovery documents uh, that, that were released online earlier in the week. And this is a private conversation that he was having with a brother and a couple other investors. But his vision for Twitter effectively is this is your social media aggregate, your news aggregate, your payment processing platform, your ability to shop, your ability to uh, everything, everything. And that's what he wants is kind of a, a monopoly share of how and where information flows from the internet. And the important thing to remember while we're talking about Elon Musk is right now, this very moment, Adam Kinzinger, uh, the, the, you know, neoliberal, I guess, runs as a Republican from Illinois, is yelling at Elon Musk saying, you and the DOD have to do something. It's a matter of national security. Elon Musk, you, the national security state, have to do something about the Starlink satellites over Ukraine. They're getting EMP'd on the Western Front. Russia's knocking them out. Elon Musk is the security state. The idea that he's going to somehow, quote unquote, save Twitter is beyond laughable. And I really hope people start to pick up on that. And Jim, one of the reasons I said this whole thing is odd to me, because as I understand it, the issues that initially motivated Elon Musk to try to walk away from the deal. I don't know that those having to do with with Twitter accounts and the number of accounts and versus fake accounts and all that kind of stuff. I don't know that those issues were ever resolved. So here he is now right back in the play at $54 a share, I think is what it was he was offering. Dr. Kavanaugh. Well, I think he wants 44. But you're right. I mean, all of those issues have completely unresolved. The fake accounts, all the bots. You know, everybody knows that's true. It came out that it's even truer than people thought. So that was a good reason for him to pull out, but he's back in. I have no idea what he's up to in the sense that I would trust him as far as I can throw him. The liberals, so-called liberals, are afraid he's going to turn, you know, stop the censorship and create a free speech platform. I don't trust any of that. I think Steve is right. He's looking for, you know, the comprehensive app of all apps, which is going to be a payment platform and a news platform as well as a social media platform and you know it's part of his complete you know envisions of omnipotence and ruling the world and he's been thrown into this this is another example of billionaires who become little gods in their own mind and not only in their own mind but they create they have a following of like a political cult or a some kind of real real ideological cult so i don't know what's going to come of this it's kind of sit back and watch uh but I don't trust him one bit. What Steve is saying about the Starlink satellite being EMP, I haven't heard. But, you know, he's playing both sides of that game. He's giving the Russian, the, the Ukrainians the Starlink satellite, and then he's telling Ukrainians how to, you know, surrender the, uh, the, the Donbass and, and come to a, a setting forward a, a peace plan that the Ukrainians hate and revile him for, even though, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. But 
it, he's a, it, it's one of these American celebrity characters who gets to rule the world and rule the news cycle and rule people's lives if he gets hold of his, uh, Twitter and turns it into some kind of new uh, ultra app. If I could interject sure. for a moment here real quick, it, it, and this is just for consideration. Um, is it possible that when Elon Musk, because he, he is so intertwined with the Department of Defense, when he goes on Twitter to throw out a poll and talk about a possible peace process between Russia and UK, is, that, is it possible that that's some sort of native advertising for the Department of Defense to kind of feel out where the sentiment is from the public without actually having to take and throw money into uh, a research poll. It wouldn't shock me. <laughs> or, or the other, or the, or the converse of that is, if, and we all can pray that they get close to a resolution of this, there is no discussion of it on Twitter. So it's not only what you put out; it's what you choose not to put out. Yeah. All right. Sputnik International. U.S. wants to destroy EU as economic player. Analysts mull ramifications of Nord Stream breakdown. I think before we even talk about them, we got another article to talk about the Nord Stream and, who, you know, et cetera. But the actual reality that the United States launched, and it is as clear as day now, particularly with the second article, but it is clear the United States has launched a military attack on what were ostensibly allies. We'll start with you, Jim. And it is clear you're not a member of NATO. You're a prisoner of NATO. Jim Kavanaugh. Yeah, the, the classic uh, Kissinger lines. Ter- it's, it's terrible to be a, uh, an enemy of the United States, but it's even worse to be a friend, to be an ally. You know, the, they, they treat the allies as their children, their pets. And they smack them in the nose when they want to put them down. And this, they smacked Germany in the nose. And they said, you know, we're going to blow up your, your infrastructure that's going to get you heat during the winter so that you can't make a deal with Russia. And I, I, I just, you know, and, and I, I can't believe it when I look at the American media that they, anybody puts forward this notion that Russia did this to themselves in some way for some bizarre reason. And now, of course, it may not be destroyed totally at all, which is another kind of bizarre element to this, another twist to the plot. But clearly this is part of the war against Europe to turn Europe into an economic dependent of the United States and to prevent it from emerging its own economic strength in, in partnership with, the, with Eurasia. I, Jim's absolutely correct. And the, the element of, you know, it, is there any real actual damage to one or both of the Nord Stream's pipelines is kind of a uh, that I don't know, a little surprise twist at the end there. But I, we've known for years now through Rancor documents, through public statements by a whole bunch of different uh, neocons that that European you know market share was uh, beyond something that was was no longer going to be allowed to happen. That they were looking at the the geopolitical realities of a potential multipolar world and looked at Europe as a, more of a, a, I guess, roadblock to the U.S. successfully competing against that. So we've had to turn the entirety of the EU into potential vassal states of the U.S. And there's a huge push to deindustrialize, then build back up in a couple of different smart megacities um, with all kinds of, with nothing but GMO products to sustain us. 
and, and that would certainly make investors happy, but I doubt it would make the European people happy. And if I might add this, in John Bolton's book, he said that they saw the EU as a competitor, that behind China, who they saw as the big competitor, they saw e- the EU as a competitor. And I think one of the things that really burned them up, the neocons, was when they left Afghanistan and Macron started saying, well, maybe we need our own army in Europe so we can do what we want. Whoa, that ain't that is <laughs> not going to happen. And now they're turning Europe into a pile of, you know, this is the way I put it. It's like Jonestown. It's like Jim Jones, where Jim Jones said, drink the Kool-Aid and die. And everybody's like, sure. Well, this is what EU is. It's an economic Jonestown. Jim. Yeah. And what's interesting also is, you know, I mean, everything about this, you know, you see the, the, the clips now of Trump railing against Nord Stream. You know, you go back, Blinken was railing against, wrote a book about the Siberian pipeline. You know, so the Americans have been against European economic integration or partnership of any kind of reasonable kind with Russia for decades. Trump railed against the North Stream Pipeline. Didn't see that on television because it contradicted the, the stupid Russiagate narrative. But you know, so Biden is, is, is following a policy that's been part of neocon policy for decades. And it's come to a fruition and come to a head with the sabotage where they're saying, not only are we going to tell you you can't do it, we're going to make it impossible for you to do it by blowing the damn thing up. So that's where we're at. And, and nobody, you know, there's certain, certainly the mainstream media doesn't want to even look this in the face and acknowledge the possibility of it. Steve, let me ask you this. And to, to, to Jim's point, the United States overthrew the Ukrainian government in 2014 because the Ukrainian government was entering into economic discussions and trade, bolstering trade with Russia. But Garland and I were kicking this around earlier, and that is, so it seems to be pretty obvious the U.S. has blown up Nord Stream 1 and 2, but now we find out that Line B in Nord Stream 2 might be viable. And so if that proves to be true, did the United States really, really shoot itself in the foot by making this big mistake and not blowing up Line B? Because now, folks, if they were clamoring for Nord Stream 2, Last Saturday, they're really going to be clamoring for line B to be turned on, and that could really expose the United States plan for what it was, Steve Poikinen. Well, that that's true, but there's also the possibility of Russia going, well, um, turns out, yeah, we did inspect line B, and, and it's fine, uh, but you don't get any. Is at, at all until all of these conditions are met. If you and because you put me in a position, absolutely, I, I have to act this way. I didn't want to act this way, but I have no choice because there's no trust. So that's, I mean, that's that's going to make for a, a very tenuous conversation. And and I think that's you hit the nail on the head. But I think that's also what Wilmer and I are talking about. Right. Because the other thing we're talking about, what you're saying is it is good leverage for Russia. At some point, the Germans yeah, say, look, man, we're freezing. Point. We got to have gas. We don't have any other choice. We're completely out. And then at that point, Russia says we can do it. But yeah. you got to recognize Donbass and Crimea you know, or something, right. whatever. We can do it. But you got to give us something in return. And the U.S. knows we got to get rid of that because at some point Germany's going to have to say yes, and we don't want them in a position to be bailed out. Jim Cavanaugh. 
Yeah, well, all of that's plausible. And, you know, but the thing is, Russia has withheld from doing those kinds of things. Consistently, they said, we are not going to hold hostage our economic relations, our energy deliveries. We're willing to give them. And I, you know, I tend to agree with you. When Russia, when, when the Europeans and France and Germany are arming Ukraine and are cutting off Russia in every other way they can, why wouldn't Russia say, okay, you want this oil? You're going to have to do X, Y, and Z. You're going to have to stop sending armed supplies and arms. You're going to have to recognize the, the, the referenda. You're going to have to, as NATO members say, you would veto any uh, accession of Ukraine to NATO, et cetera. Russia could very well do that. At some point, they may. And, you know, from the point of view of Russian strategy, they probably should. But that's going to be a change, you know, uh, a, in the, the way that Putin has, has uh, approached this so far. And people should recognize that. Putin has been very reasonable. Yes. U.S. accuses OPEC of aligning with Russia. Gulf states deny politics at play. I think there's a couple of things. We'll start with you, with, with you, Steve. There's a couple of interesting things here. Number one, and that is that, you know, we've been told the whole world is on our side. Everybody's against Russia. But we keep seeing people from Africa and the Middle East and at various places say, not us. We're going to abstain from this vote or whatever. But now we're seeing something concrete where Saudi Arabia, which has been an, you know, an erstwhile ally of the U.S., et cetera, is saying, "Uh, uh-uh, nope, you guys are going to try to cut oil prices. That's not happening. We're siding with Russia. And, and, And also, if you could comment on the you know, this furious reaction by so-called uh, liberal Rokana, so-called progressive, who's screaming, we've got to take revenge. We'll start with you, Steve. I mean, okay, so Rokana's hypocrisy knows no bounds, <laughs> but Rokana's kind of a, he, he's a, a marketing creation in and of itself. He's supposed to be the, the you know, banner-carrying progressive. He's supposed to be the, uh, I, uh, you know, what are the Justice Democrats or what the very first one, that guy, he's the guy who Silicon Valley put into the race in the first place to get rid of Mike Honda back in the day because Mike Honda was actually trying to hold Silicon Valley responsible on some things. Yep. And that was foreboding. So, I mean, Rose's whole shtick is just hoping that people forgot about him in between bad cakes. And that's all he's got to, to go by. Um, with OPEC, it's it's about time, but man, is it going to hurt here? Oh my goodness! I said gas has already shot up to almost nine bucks a gallon in Los Angeles. It's almost six bucks a gallon in uh, Vegas. Just on the word of this, and it hasn't even started yet, mind you. Donald Trump got laughed out of the building and decried when he was trying to refill strategic petroleum reserves at twenty four bucks a barrel. Now we're getting limited to what we'll actually be able to have, the price of that's going to be skyrocketed. And this is all because the U.S. tried to make a leverage game out of Europe over Ukraine. They were trying to triple deal with selling liquid natural gas and with oil, and a lot of that was even going to China. So, of course, Saudi Arabia is going to go, hey, look, we've seen how you do business. And in the last couple of years, we've really seen how you treat your friends. Maybe it's time you you uh, you learn something, Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, well, you know, echoes of oil embargo days uh, in the seventies when the Saudis stood up. You know, when uh, the Americans needed the oil. Now the Saudis and the 
Gulf states and OPEC is standing up, as you say, it's the Americans who are saying after saying that everybody's everybody's on our side. No, no, no. They're aligning with Russia. Well, they're standing up for themselves and for their ability to make more money out of this because that's their that's their purpose. That's the purpose of OPEC and for, for their ability to keep uh, to keep in the long term because they're afraid of oversupply of oil. If there's a slowdown over the next few years to keep the oil price, their oil income steady. So, you know, they're doing their own and they're not afraid of the United States. They just nobody's afraid anymore. And <clears throat> so that's a that's a big deal. I will say this about. It's interesting to see the reaction to this because you do see all of the American politicians say, we're going to go, we'll, we'll do something to Saudi Arabia. And they can do something to Saudi Arabia. You know, d- don't kid yourself, the Saudi monarchy could be in trouble with this. And the United States, what you see here is something that I've, um, it's a pet peeve of mine. Saudi Arabia is not the same as Israel in terms of the influence on the American foreign policy. They'll go after Saudi Arabia if they want to. And, uh, uh, this is an example of that. You know, they're, they're, every one of them, you know, is is coming up and saying all the progressives and the uh, conservatives are saying, well, you know, we'll have to punish Saudi Arabia in some way. Don't be surprised if they do find a way to do that in terms of political movement. Suddenly you'll have a color revolution in Saudi Arabia. Hey, Steve, here's the thing, too. The U.S. is, you know, in a proxy war with Russia, in some kind of a proxy war, really, so far, even though it's, you know, asymmetric with China. We are literally in a war with our own so-called allies as we're bombing the infrastructure in uh, Europe. Now they're saying, okay, we got to go after Saudi Arabia. It's at a point now where is there anybody that the U.S. isn't in some kind of war with, allies, enemies, uh, suppliers of energy, you name it, it's completely gone off the rails? Uh, especially especially when Joe Biden likes to traverse the world talking about sovereignty and, and the power and the value of sovereignty and respecting sovereignty. And here you have Saudi Arabia and Russia deciding what's in their interest. But because that is contrary to America's interest, now all of a sudden they have to be sanctioned. Well, and and let's just keep running down the list, too, where Garland was going, because we've ridiculously expanded our presence in AFRICOM. We've got a couple of different operations that are going on on the continent in Africa right now. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Haiti is absolutely yep. insane, and a lot of that is U.S. backed. The Biden administration is on record very recently, within the last week or so, talking about how uh, it's uh, uh, about to become a problem for Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. They're blaming the influx of immigrants on those three countries in particular. The Biden administration and Kareem uh, Abdul-Jabbar Jean-Pierre is sitting there talking about they're fleeing communism. They're running from communism. What are we supposed to do? Ramping up that particular dog whistle from the Biden administration. So it's I'm, we're we're trying to we're trying to play the entire game of risk with one roll of the dice. And it's it's just it's not going to work out. It's not. Jim's absolutely correct. Nobody's afraid of us anymore. Jim Cavanaugh. Well, yeah, it's not only forever war, it's the everywhere war. (laughs) I mean, it's all for all time and all places. And this we're seeing the extension of it in time and in space and geographical space. I mean, they are willing because this is desperation. They do see that the end point of what's happening in Ukraine is is. You know, this is the 
turning point in the global world order from a, from a unipolar to a, to a multipolar world order. And they're desperate to stop that from happening. And it's that desperation that makes everything extremely, extremely dangerous because who knows what they'll do on this. And it's incoherent, you know. What are they doing with Venezuela? They just made a new deal to allow Venezuela to come back into Chevron and to make that happen. So what's happened to Juan Guaido? Is he, is he, is he or is he not the president? Of, you know, I mean, they have to make up their minds about this. And it's, it's, so there's a level of incoherence because you cannot do this. You can't sanction the entire world and make war on the entire world and cut off everybody's trading all over the world. You just can't do it. It's incoherent. But they're desperate to come out of this with a win that they and they'll do anything to prevent a loss. And that's the problem we're, we're, we're facing. It's going to lead us potentially to nuclear war and whatever. So it's extremely dangerous. Well, that's one of the things very interesting as we as we get close to the November midterms. When Biden came back from Saudi Arabia, they were hailing this as a victory. And now we find, no, you 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 uh, snatched defeat <laughs> from the. Uh, Liz Truss already less popular than disgraced Boris Johnson, according to polls. A survey shows that she was she has the worst approval of any UK prime minister since 2010. And Steve, I think she's only been in the position for three weeks. She's good. Oh, I mean, she works quick. She's a real go-getter. You gotta, you gotta say that. And, and just quickly, I do want to say that I'm almost positive that Wang Guaido is opening for Penn and Teller here in Vegas. Oh, no. good, good, good. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's where he is. The disappearing um, president act is what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a hit. Um, we, I, Liz Truss came into office unpopular. She was only elected by there were only 160,000 people who got the vote on her in the first place. The it's there's uh, just chaotic rift after chaotic rift that has gone through the UK on so many different social segments anyway, leading up to the point to where they're in a manufactured energy crisis that practically everybody in the country knows is largely the fault of the previous administration that Liz Truss led, And they gave, they tried to do a massive tax break to the richest people like her second day in office. She was like, oh, I guess the solution to all of our problems is we'll give billionaires more money and screw the rest of you. <laughs> and then the banks went bankrupt. The Bank of England had to come in and be like, whoa, 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 whoa hang on. And so I mean, she was set up to fail. She was a scapegoat anyway. They were the, the whole, Everybody knew the collapse was going to go. But she had to have known they were pinning it on her. But her own ego made her go through with it. I don't even know what to say that, that is going to be, you know, coherent after this because my friend Gordon Demick got me all wound up earlier this week and he lives there, but they're going to have to go through the, the deliberate destruction of their country because, you know, Lizzie needed a new pen or something. I, it's, it's insane. Jim Cavanaugh, we got about a minute. Yeah, well, I had seen maybe Michael Hudson even was talking about how Boris Johnson was setting up to come back <laughs> to send her in to be to be scapegoated and to be sacrificed so that he would come back quickly. Because uh, what are the who are the Tories going to going to turn to after this? But of course, you have the uh, the Stammer uh, labor rights now getting some traction on this. But this again demonstrates that they've managed to. Uh, will pare down the Overton window of policy and politics in 
Britain between ridiculous conservatives and phony laborites who destroyed the possibility of the alternative with Corbyn. So we're going to we're going to see more stupidity coming out of this uh, context, political context, too, I think, and more nastiness, as you say, you know, the, the Tory policy is cut taxes for the rich. You know, it's stupid libertarianism. Dr. Jim Cavanaugh, Steve Poikin, and gentlemen, thank you both so much. Enjoy your weekends. Re- really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out. 